Today I'm going to do uh, the beginning of a three-week series. We're calling it Selah. Uh, Selah is a Hebrew word that we're not quite sure what it means, but we know that David inserted the word in his writings and the lyrics that he was producing in the Psalms. And so we know it means to pause or to stop or to rest. And we can also mean maybe it to mean rest and consider what you've just heard, what you've just thought about. And so Selah, and we're going to talk about worship. The Westminster Confession, written in the latter part of the 17th century, suggests that the main purpose of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Glorify God, enjoy Him forever. And there's something to that that can be meaningful to our perspective. If I ask a hundred of you, what is the definition of Christian worship? You might get a hundred different answers. What does it mean? And today I want to try to answer that question, to define what Christian worship is all about. I've chosen as our text today from John's Gospel, chapter 4. This is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. She's the woman at the well, and many of you know this scenario. And she's all interested in where people should worship God, but Jesus is more interested in how people should worship God. And so we pick up this story in verse 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So thanks for doing that as you're able. And we pick up their conversation. The woman said, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now may God inspire and encourage us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I grew up in a small town. My parents took uh, my sisters and me to a small church growing up, a little Methodist church, and it was a curious experience for me. Now, now, now picture yourself maybe, you know, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, and going to church on Sunday. My, one of my pastors growing up when I was just very young like that, he was a very formal guy and very, uh, very determined to be proper and all of that. And every Sunday morning, he would stand up and he would recite a line from the prophet Habakkuk. And he had his black robe on, of course, and he was very formal. And he would extend his hands like this, first thing, every week. And he would go into his God voice. You know what I mean? He would talk like normal the rest of the week. But in, in this moment, he would do his God voice. <laughs> and it went like this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What well, just scared me. It freaked me out. I thought, what has happened to him? Maybe something under his robe or something. I don't know what's going on. And it was just, it was almost kind of creepy. So the worship service for me growing up was a curious mixture of completely foreign experiences that left me, left me mostly confused uh, almost always bored and occasionally scared. Now, Sunday school 
was different for me because Sunday school was a gray-haired older woman teacher who was reassuring to us kids about the fact that Jesus loved us. And we sang the song, God loves the little children and Jesus loves me, this I know. And besides there were pictures of Jesus all around the room in our Sunday school class. And these pictures of Jesus, you know, Jesus was kind of effeminate. You know, he's, he was a little soft and he had blue eyes and chestnut hair. And I, I just knew looking at the pictures, he couldn't hurt me if he wanted to. So Jesus was okay with me. It was God that had me thrown off a bit. I wasn't sure who that, who that was. So we would start the day in the basement for Sunday school and then move to the sanctuary for this rather bizarre activity. And this is when perfectly warm, gracious, generous, normal human beings. This is a small town, small church, less than 100 people. Everybody knew everybody. We were all related. We all knew each other. And we were neighbors, so we knew these folks. But suddenly folks would change. Their demeanor would change. I observed this even as a child. Why are people acting so strange? It's almost, it's almost like they're nervous about something. The organist would enter, and suddenly we were at the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and she would open with Bach's staccato in D minor. Her name, ironically enough, was Eleanor Keys. Now, Eleanor was advanced in age. She had been the church organist for approximately 117 years at that point. And you couldn't pry her off the organ bench. In fact, the, the bench had conformed to the, Well, anyway. So she, she uh, had one liability as an organist. And, and it was that in her older age, she had become stone deaf. Now, if you're not a musician or a vocalist, uh, you wouldn't appreciate this. But as it turns out, if you can't hear what you're playing, <laughs> it affects the quality of the performance. And so Eleanor, Eleanor would routinely play the organ way too loud, uh, just overwhelming the whole room. And, and oftentimes, as she sat at the organ bench during the sermon, her, she, would, she would get a little drowsy and she, her foot would slip onto one of the pedals. And so the organ would just come up with this tone. You know, this, this, the organ would moan in that, in that key. And the pastor would have to stop and look at her and go, and go. she'd pull her foot off because she couldn't hear, couldn't hear it. Then, then, the, then the choir would come in in their nightgowns and they would, they would assemble. And then the pastor would come in and I said he would always wear this big black robe. I mean, he looked like a big bird, you know, with some kind of glandular problem. It's just, it's just oversized. And it was all quite strange. And it, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't that, it wasn't proper because it was proper. But it was at the same time dull and stale and perfunctory. And I don't think it was the con so much because uh, looking back on it now, I realize the words were right and the prayers were right and the songs were right, but it was like the attitude and the spirit of the people just wasn't, wasn't right. Every week, the pastor would lead us in the recitation of the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, he would say, uh, let us all stand together and join in this historic confession of the Christian faith. We turn at the back of our hymnals to the page with the, with the creed. 
And folks would stand there with this, with this droning sound, this thousand-mile bovine stare, doing the Apostles' Creed, and on the third day, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I believe in the Holy Spirit. No, no one did. No one was connected. No one was getting it. No one was, no one was experiencing anything, it seems, meaningful. And I think the problem was that there was something wrong with our concept, something wrong with our foundation, something wrong with our expectation and our attitude about worship. And so over the years, we've had to try to think about that and sort that out because folks were not engaged. So the basic concept is important. The foundations of expectation are really, really valuable. For example, I heard the story of a man who was an avid deer hunter and his wife, thinking that she could spend more quality time with him, decided secretly to buy a deer rifle and learn how to shoot. And she did that. She became a crack shot. And so the first day of deer season, the husband was thrilled that she had gone to this kind of effort to spend time with him and doing things he enjoys. And so he took her out in the woods, put her up in a tree stand and said, now I'm going to go along this ridge and, and I'm going to flush anything that's, that's down the way. And if they come through the cove here, you shoot it. She said, great, I'll do that. So he hadn't gone a couple of hundred yards and suddenly he heard the report of his wife's rifle. Boom, 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 like that. <laughs> he went racing back and he, he, to his surprise, he saw a man standing pinned against a tree with his hands up like this and his wife holding this guy with a rifle. He says to his wife, what, are you, what is going on here? What's, what's happening? She said, look, I shot this deer and this guy keeps trying to drag it into the woods. And the man against the tree said, no, no, look, lady, you can have the deer. I'm just trying to get my saddle off of him. So you can be well-intentioned, but if your basic concept is wrong, you can end up shooting the wrong animal. Explain it to them when you get home. So what do you understand worship to be? What, what is your functional model of worship? What should worship be like? Now, when I went to the God School, the seminary years ago, quickly I found myself in a worship classroom, and so now the professor who's learned and wise, he he instructed us about these definitions and we were ready. And he said, now that we are here in the worship class, let's define worship. First, let's de determine what worship is not. And he said, worship is not people on a platform performing for people in the pews. We all went, yeah, that's right, that's not worship. And we wrote that down. That's not the de people on a platform performing for people in the pews, that's not worship. So he said, this is what worship is. He said, it is all of us as performers and God is the audience. So people on the platform prompt the people in the pews, the liturgist, the song leader, the pastor, the preacher. So the people on the platform prompting people in the pews and corporately we become the performers and God is the audience. And we all heard that and we wrote that down. We said, okay, yeah, that's it. That's what worship is. That's the definition. That's our philosophy of worship.
everybody corporately, saying the right words, doing the right things, and God is the audience. And he's the beneficiary of this worship. Okay. So we got out in the real world, Beth and I, and we began to practice this philosophy of worship, and it didn't take very long, and I realized something's wrong. Something's wrong with this whole concept. And what I concluded is that if that's our definition of worship, then that definition of worship is classic paganism. It's paganism. Paganism believes that God or the gods are just big human beings. I mean, think about the Greek gods. In Greek mythology, you know, we have popular movies now with Thor and some of these other Greek mythological figures. And these gods, these pagan gods, are actually just great big strong human beings. They're, they're, they have human qualities, human virtues, and also human sins, only magnified millions of times. And so in the pagan mind, what happens is the pagan god can be capable then of starting all kinds of trouble, starting wars, plagues, having multiple wives, all of that stuff. So in the pagan mind, there is no concept of a loving god, but only a, a god who's just a great big human being who needs to be placated or appeased in an attempt to keep him off your back, you know, off your case. So pagan worship is actually designed to pacify these gods who are just great big humans who become capricious or egotistical or adolescent in their behaviors. And this is what forms the concept of worship. Now, there is one concept, though, that the pagan mind, the pagan world, the pagan practitioner cannot understand, comprehend. And this is the holiness of God, the completeness of God. When we say God is holy, we say we mean he's whole. He is complete unto himself. He needs nothing else, anyone else to be complete. He is holy. He is, he is within himself self-contained. And he is holy. There, and so there, there are world religions who can't comprehend this. There are world religions who can't comprehend the purity, the holiness, the completeness of God. For example, the Muslim faith can't comprehend it. And before I say something about the Muslim faith, uh, let me just remind us all that everybody, everybody's doing their best to try to understand God. And Muslims are no exception. And so God always judges people's hearts. And even in a context or a culture where people don't have access to the gospel, they don't understand what Jesus has done for them, these are people who, when sincere and truly seek after God, God will meet them as best he can where they are. And people will be judged based on the motives of their heart and the sincerity of their life. And God always does that. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. And so having said that, I'm not trying to impugn Muslims in any way. I'm just giving you context for the notion that in the Muslim mind, for example, their God, Allah, is greater than the God of Jesus Christ, the Christian God, because Allah can do whatever he wants in order to accomplish his will. In the Muslim worldview, Allah, for example, can lie. If lying is necessary to accomplish his purpose, then he can lie. But in the Christian world, the Christian God, the Christian theology, 
God has restricted himself. He has limited himself. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is there are some things God cannot do. For example, God cannot lie. And the reason God cannot lie is because he can't deny himself. His nature and character is holy. And so he's not going to be lying about something. God will not withhold or turn his back or, or wash his hands of some promise he's made. If he's made a promise, God will fulfill his promise. That's where an amen goes in the sermon. God, if God says, this is what I promise to do, then you can count on God doing it. This is the God that we serve. God, for example, cannot turn a deaf ear to someone who is sincerely repentant of their sins. So a person who sincerely seeks God, asks forgiveness of the things they've done wrong to be included in God's family, God cannot turn a deaf ear to that. He always hears that prayer. So God is self-limiting by his own character and nature. And that's actually virtuous in my in my worldview. So God is great, but is in Islam, they believe that Allah can do whatever he wants, including sinful things. And so it's a different concept. And the concept that the pagan cannot understand is the holiness of God. So it becomes, over time, more and more difficult to appease these gods. The degree of difficulty has to go up. And so things have to be added. And so we see this in world religious. We, we see this in all kinds of behaviors and patterns. So you have to add robes or tassels or hats or stars or bells or makeup or special shoes or sacred underwear or bones or feathers or dances or chanting or tambourines or banners or whatever. So you have to increase the degree of difficulty. And so at some point, some group, some tribe somewhere says, look, the, all the rules and regulations to keep these gods happy are too extensive. We've got to pick out someone from the tribe and they'll become our priest. We'll send them away to learn the God stuff, the clearing in the jungle here somewhere, and some elder, some sage will teach them the God stuff. They'll come back and the deal will be struck and we will fund this priest. We will support this priest if the priest will perform all of the rituals properly enough so that this appeases the gods that we serve and they'll keep them off our backs. You know, so it'll rain when our crops are dry and... And, and we'll be fed and so forth, you know, and so the weather will be right for us. So we just get God's favor by appeasing this God. And so what happens is we send these people off to become priests, and when they come back, um, the deal is struck. And here's what, happened, here's what happened in American Christianity about 50 years ago or so. There was a growing unrest, especially in the mainline historic denominations, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, so forth. A growing unrest in the pews of the average mainline church. And what was happening among congregants is they were becoming frustrated. And their frustration was because they had an anticipation and expectation that when they came to church, that they would actually encounter God in some way. But the priesthood was no longer delivering in an effective way. And so this, this, caused, this caused people in the pews to start to get angry. And 50 years ago, and for several decades after that, the underlying emotion in the, in the pews of the typical American church was anger. Folks maybe didn't express it or they couldn't put their finger on it, but they knew something was wrong. 
we're coming to church, but we're not experiencing God. Something's not right. And so folks were getting angry. And so what's happened over the last 50 years is people have just left the church. My expectations aren't being met. I'm not finding God. I'm not experiencing God. That's, my intuition tells me that, that's why I go <laughs> to, to hang out with those people and it's not happening. And so the church has been in this precipitous decline and Presbyterians and, and Lutherans and Methodists and, and the rest of us, we don't talk about it much because if you look at the graph, we're, in, we're just falling off. People are just saying, look, I'm out. So we're losing people by the tens of thousands and indeed the millions out of the church in America. This happened in Europe in another generation. But we're not talking about it. And so here's what's happened. The, the underlying emotion in the pew is anger, but the underlying emotion in the pulpits among the priests is fear. Because folks out there are getting ticked off that they weren't getting what they needed. And folks up here are going, oh no, I don't have what to give them, what they need. And so I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job or I'm gonna lose my status or gonna lose my position. And so uh, anger exacerbated with fear and vice versa just created this vicious cycle and this downward fall. Now in the last decade or so, there's been a transition. Folks now leaving in droves out of the mainline churches in the United States and the priesthood failing to deliver now the priesthood decides, okay, what can we do about this? So the two options are I can either return to God and stop worrying about so much where I stand on the platform and concern myself more with where I stand with God, or I can, I can simply adapt my worldview and my philosophy and my leadership and my priesthood to the church in concert with the mores of modern postmodern, post-Christian culture. The rationale is that if I conform to the shape of the world, then everybody in the world is going to think that I'm an okay place and the church is going to fill up with people again. And so rather in marketing in truth and spirit and the, and the virtues and values that were once delivered to the saints, the priesthood now is full of compromise. And the church has become a hollow shell. We, we have an outward form of religion, but all you have to do is put just the slightest bit of pressure on it, and it just pokes right through because there's nothing inside. There's no substance. We have lost our soul. And so too many places just go through the motions. Motivated by fear and determined to conform to the shape of the world in some last ditch effort to appeal to people. Please come into our churches. We accept everyone no matter what. We agree with everybody no matter what. We don't care what your worldview is. You're welcome here. It's pathetic. I heard the story of a man who was in a receiving line. He was part of a wedding party. He was a groomsman, and you've all been there. You've either been in the wedding party or you've been a guest at a wedding. You know how this goes. You're there at the wedding. Sometimes you're enthused about being there. Other times you're just trying to be nice and gracious to your friends. 
And so you're there. And, you know, you're checking your watch. You hope it gets over with soon. And so people are filing out of a wedding. And the wedding party was all lined up. You've seen this, the bride and the groom, the parents, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids, everybody's shaking hands. One of the groomsmen one day, he just decided, I'm going to see if anybody's actually paying attention. And so for 250 people attending the wedding, they come through the line, and this groomsman sticks out his hands. The 250 people smiles at them and says, I just murdered my grandmother. And people said, you look nice. Hi, I just murdered my grandmother. Did a great job. Hi, I just murdered my grandmother. He said, not one person stopped and went, you did what? And I think that's a perfect illustration of the typical mainline church in America right now. People come into a worship service, they have no concept, they have no spirit, they have no attitude, they have no expectation, they come in just the way they were, they leave the same way, and nothing ever gets done. And it's not good. It's not good, it's not right. So if I'm trying to appease God, or perform for God, or placate God, or trying to please other people, that's not Christian worship. That is its own death. That is performance and it leads to death. If on the other hand, I'm trying to experience God in some personal way to identify with God, I've heard his word, I felt his hand on my life, I've been inspired by a moment in the worship service, that's Christian worship. That's what it means. Now, let me just say two things because I've been, I'm a bit on a bit of a soapbox today and I just want to get it out of my system. There are two things that I have practiced in the past and I will continue to practice. I do this personally and I do it professionally. And I just want you to know what it is. Because the culture, as you know, has gone crazy. And the church has gone right along with it. And it's, uh, it's insane. And so there are, there are two postures that I have assumed in the past and I, I assume right now and I assume, I'll assume in the future. And I want you to know this and maybe this will inspire you. There, there, is, there is lots of criticism toward anyone in our culture today who embraces anything of traditional value with a biblical vision, a traditional worldview. And, and, and so it's, it's, not just, it's, not just, uh, it's not just pushback, it's outright venomous attack on anyone who maintains this kind of worldview. What I have done and what I will continue to do are these two things. Number one, I am not going to apologize for what I believe. Amen. My beliefs have been cultivated over a number of years in the context of God-given opportunities for me to be exposed to some of the greatest men and women who've ever lived. I've been taught, I've been trained, I've sat at the feet of people who are historically admirable. And I have my own mind, and I've done my own study, and I've come to some convictions in my life. There are some things I believe to be true, absolutely true. I know we live in a post-truth culture. I don't care. I have some convictions. 
I try with all that is within me not to act or react or live by my feelings because my feelings, they, they will confuse me. I'm, my feelings will cause me to think one thing on Monday and a completely another thing on Tuesday. And so I try not to operate out of my feelings. I operate, I make decisions, I live my life, I make my choices out of my convictions. And my convictions are based on a historical, traditional, theologically orthodox rendering and understanding of the scripture. You gotta hang your hat somewhere, friends. This is where I choose to hang mine. You gotta you got put a hook somewhere and hang your stuff there. You can, you can hang it on pop culture if you want to. I choose not to. You know, for 2,000 years, there've been certain mores that have been passed down generation to generation for 2,000 years about such things as human sexuality and marriage and those kinds of things. And now in the last three minutes of human history, people decide, well, that's all debunked now and we're gonna try a new way. And you can do that if you want. You can believe it, you can make it your conviction. You're a free moral agent, you can do whatever you want. Here's just what I'm telling you. I will not apologize for what I believe to be true. And the second thing that I have practiced and will continue to practice is that I'm not going to be afraid of you or anyone else if you disagree with me. You can call me names, you can impugn my character, you can accuse me of all kinds of evil and malpractice. Uh, you, can, you can be in any position or status and role in the world and you can attack me all you want. I'm not afraid of you. And so I'm not gonna apologize and I'm not gonna cower and I'm not gonna back up. You can believe what you believe and I'll respect you. All I'm asking is for the same respect and we'll let God judge and see who comes down on the right side of these things. We'll, we'll let him decide. So don't, don't expect me to be apologetic and don't expect me to cower because I'm not gonna do it. And I know I won't because I've seen me not do it. And so there it is, so deal with it. Three quick points now about worship. Number one, write this down. Worship is fundamentally relational. Fundamentally, it's relational. The primary characteristic of Christian worship is relationship. When it becomes anything else, such as appeasement or performance or any of those things, it becomes its own death. So it is primarily, fundamentally relational. What if, what if I've been gone for a couple of weeks out preaching somewhere or whatever, and I come home, and all my family's at home, and I get there, and Beth is there, and our two boys, and our sister, uh, daughters-in-law, and our grandkids, and all these, all the, the, everybody's there. And I walk in the front door, I've been gone for two weeks. I'm eager to see everybody. And Beth, Beth says, hey, look, Papa's home. Just like that, she does that. And then she looks at everybody, everybody looks up, and then she goes, all rise. Everybody folds their hands, stands up, folds their hands, and they start singing. Papa's home. Papa's home. Now, let me ask you something. What am I going to think about that? Here's what I'm going to do. Hey, hey, kids, I'm right here. What are you doing? I, I'm, I'm in the room been gone for a couple of weeks. 
eager to see you. What are you doing? I'm going to think they're crazy. They lost their mind. Yeah. Because where's the relationship? Number two on your outline, write this down. We are to worship in truth and spirit. In truth and spirit. Now, this is what Jesus said. Those who are true worshipers will worship in truth and spirit. Now, truth means the truth. And you got, and you, and you got, to, you got to decide what the truth is. And the mandate, the mandate for people like me is that I should study to show myself approved. And the relationship we have with each other is we make this contract that you support me and my family and I study myself to be approved so that I can teach and I can, and I can uh, articulate the Orthodox faith in a meaningful, applicable way. And so that's the arrangement we have. So Jesus said that you worship in truth. It's about the truth. There is truth. And all truth is God's truth. And we want to find that. And we want people to spend their lives searching for it and understanding it so that they can communicate it. So that's part of the deal. And the second part is in spirit. This is the opposite of flesh, but in the spirit. So apparently there's a spiritual connection. God is a spirit, Jesus said in John 4, and so we worship him in spirit. We have a spirit, so our spirits connect with God. This is part of the relationship. This is, this is the intimacy. This is the experience. This is the encounter place that we have with God, not in the flesh. So what you can have is it doesn't matter what style of worship you have, it can become in the flesh. I can be so proper and so formal and so perfunctory, saying all the right words in a precise manner that I can get proud about that. And churches get this way all the time. I mean, my, my, my clerical vestments are in perfect order. They're the perfect color for the perfect season. And, and, and all of the words are just pristine and precise. And I can get all puffed up about that. You mean your church doesn't do this particular liturgy or your church doesn't practice this particular pattern? And that can be all kinds of pride and fleshy and nasty and performance and dead. And on the other hand, it can get crazy. In freestyle, back, back to the illustration. I get home. Everybody's there. I walk in the front door. Beth says, Papa's home, and immediately everybody jumps up on their feet and starts running around screaming with their hands in the air. Somebody grabs a tambourine, starts shaking it. One of the kids pick up a banner and start flying around. Two of the kids fall out on the floor, start rolling around on the floor, back and forth over my toes, out the door, out in the front yard, rolling around. Papa's home, Papa's home, Papa's home. A couple of them start speaking in tongues. One of them starts prophesying. I mean, it's, it's a party. I mean, it, it goes off. I mean, somebody lit the fuse and off it goes. I'm still standing at the door watching all this. Hey, I, I, I'm, I'm right, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I'm, I'm right here. I'm, I'm in the room. So my point is style isn't the issue. It's attitude, it's expectation. It's concept. So I don't want to have to go through some dull, stale, perfunctory liturgical service to, to some, somehow draw the attention of God. And neither do I have to, want to have to boogie for Jesus to show him how spiritual I am. Both of which 
can become directly related to the flesh. In one hand, you got, you got this pride that develops in being so proper. By the way, there isn't anything more proper in the world than a cemetery. And, and, and it, can be, it can be pride and fleshly. And then on the other hand, it can be completely of the flesh when you're boogieing for Jesus. Because last week, last week, you know, Pastor, you were preaching that sermon. Boy, I got tingly feelings. I got goosebumps. And boy, I was really feeling it. But this week, you know, I just didn't get any goosebumps at all. What do you think's wrong? Let me tell you what's wrong. You, there's something wrong with your expectation. Here's an interesting verse in, in Exodus 20. This is where God has given uh, Moses a recipe for the anointing oil to be used in the worship service. And he says, now watch out with this oil because it's, it's powerful. And it's not just because God has orchestrated the recipe, but it's because it smells so good. He said, it will exceed the perfumes of Egypt. This is really potent stuff and, it, and people will be attracted to it. So he told Moses, this is what he said. If anyone mixes unto it, in other words, anyone mixes some up for himself uh, to apply it on themselves so that they'd smell better, they should be cut off from the congregation of the living. So in other words, the perfume of worship is forbidden to the flesh. Forbidden. Authentic worship is never about the flesh. It's always about the spirit and about truth. It's so important. The oil of perfume may be used on the bride of Christ, but never on your flesh. So God said, you can't make up this, this, this oil, oil, anointing oil and spread it on your top lips so you can because make the world smell good to you or make you smell good to others. So this isn't about your fleshly experience. This is about worship in a spiritual sense. And so it's very interesting. And we learn then that worship is fundamentally relational and that it is bound to truth and spirit. So the issue isn't robes and candles versus choruses and, and streamers. It's about truth and spirit. Now, this leads me to the third thing. This is the last thing I'll say. Here's your definition of worship. Someone asks you, what is authentic worship? You tell them this. Worship in truth and spirit is experiencing God. Experiencing God. You can experience God in your mind, thinking lofty thoughts. God can speak to you in your head. You may leave here today going, you know, I learned something. That helped me. I encountered God. You may have come in with a burden. And somehow maybe in the, in the, in the singing of songs or some in the context of our worship experience today, you sense God's presence. You felt his hand laid upon you in that area of your life you, and you, you felt comforted or you felt peace or you felt hope come back to your life. You go, I experienced God. There's a thousand different ways you can experience God, but you're only a worshiper to the degree that you experience God. Just because you're in the room today doesn't make you a worshiper. If you haven't experienced God, you haven't worshiped because you haven't connected. It's, there's, not, there's no relationship. There's no spirit. There's no truth. And so these things are essential in worship. So you have to have the concept right. Therefore, your expectation becomes right, and you can understand it. Last story. Years ago, when I made my first trip overseas, I was gone for three weeks. Our sons, Aaron and Isaac, were 11 and 4 years old at the time. And so three weeks was a long time to be away. And I was anxious to get home. They were anxious to see me. 
And the last leg from Los Angeles to Indianapolis Airport. This is back in the day before security kept you from going to clear to the gate, you know, to see people off or to receive them home. And so they were all there waiting in the terminal at the gate for me to get off the plane. And the boys were standing on either side of the entryway into the terminal, and they were just watching people disembark my plane. That's not him, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. And finally, I appear at the doorway of the terminal, and Isaac, who was four years old, he saw me, and he just took a step, and he, and he locked on my leg. He just grabbed my leg and went chunk like this and had me, wrapped his arms and legs around my leg right here. And, I, and Aaron, who was 11, stepped from the other side, and he just nuzzled his head underneath my chin right here, and then he wrapped his arms around me and just squeezed. And after the boys had attached themselves, Beth stepped forward and she got up on her tiptoes and she kissed me right here on the cheek. Just a tender little kiss. And then she whispered in my ear, welcome home. And she had her arms around me. And so there were the four of us just standing there in the airport, arm in arm, holding each other just like we're one person. <laughs> totally oblivious to anyone else in the airport, anyone else in the world. We were together and we were celebrating each other's presence. Now as incomplete as any kind of human illustration like that might be, to describe a spiritual principle, listen to me, that was worship. That's it. Right there. That was it. That's what we're talking about. That's what God desires. He wants relationship. He wants a deep, warm, fulfilling intimacy with us. He doesn't need special rituals. He doesn't need extracurricular activities. He just wants us. In the intimacy of our relationship to connect with him and allow him to touch us, allow him to meet our need, allow him to speak to us. And our job is to serve him with the truth and with our praise. And in that connection, we are authentic and we learn to worship. You can do this by yourself, anywhere, anytime. You can worship God, connect with him. And it should be our expectation every time we assemble corporately that we will worship God in truth and in spirit and find that connection and that intimacy. Do you get it? Authentic worship is experiencing God. That's it. Now let's spend 30 seconds praying and asking God to help us and maybe practice just a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? Focus on Jesus just for a moment. Open your heart. Just in your thoughts now, tell, tell him how wonderful he is. Speak of his love. Remember his tender grace toward you. Lord, I worship you. I'm not ashamed to worship you in front of all these people. You're the lover of my soul. I adore you.
You're the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. You're the rose of Sharon, fairest of 10,000, pearl of great price. Your feet are beautiful, your hands, your pierced brow, beyond all description, majestic sweetness sits enthroned. We praise you. We give you adoration. We love you. You are our king, our savior, our Christ, our Lord. You are our redeemer. We worship you. Now let me lead you in just a simple exercise. In just a moment, I want you to say out loud, These words, Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. And then after you say that, I want you to listen. I want you to get quiet and see if you hear anything. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I love you. Now let's say it together. Lord Jesus, I love you. Now, what I know is that some of you connected, you experienced God right then. Because as soon as you said, Lord Jesus, I love you, you heard something back. And what you heard was, I love you too. Now, if you didn't hear that, it's not because it wasn't spoken to you. Because every one of us in this room who said, Lord Jesus, I love you, actually was spoken to. Some of us just couldn't hear it. And this is where you need to practice because you need to practice experiencing God. Practice the worship of God. Practice hearing God. And so the more you lean in toward him, the more sensitive you will become to his voice and to his touch and to his word. And so that's the homework. Practice worship wherever you are, any time of the day or night. You can draw near to God, and the promise is, if you do that, God will draw near to you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And you can practice the presence of God and experience worship. Lord, we thank you for this teaching this morning. and for the understanding that you offer to us, the invitation to this most wonderful experience of worship. So more and more, Lord, both privately and in our corporate life together, may we experience you more and more in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?